Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to Venture Stories by Village Global Podcast. I'm here today on a very special episode of Crypto Stories. I'm here with Jimmy Song. Jimmy, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Before getting into it, Jimmy, can you please introduce yourself, what you're currently working on, and where you're most excited about in the crypto ecosystem right now? Yeah, so I, I've been a Bitcoin developer for the past five years. So I, uh, I basically have programmed for a number of years all around the protocol, including wallets and services and blockchains, and also contribute to open source projects on a regular basis. Um, I also teach a class called Programming Blockchain to get developers up to speed on this technology. So yeah, that that's what I've been doing. And that's, uh, that's uh, you know, I, I would say I'm a pretty grizzled veteran at this point compared to a lot of other people in the space. One thing that I find you know most interesting about your story, and I've listened to every interview you've done, and I've read all your posts, is that, you know, you've been a, you know, engineer or technologist for, for 20 years now. But what is what has gotten you perhaps even more excited recently is, is, or in the last few years is looking at crypto through an economic lens that, you know, one, we can learn how cryptocurrencies evolved and will evolve by, by studying, you know, the history of how money's ever emerged and, you know, mm-hmm. Austrian economics, but also looking at sort of how Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash, how that sort of played out by evaluating economic incentives. So I'm curious, when did that sort of, you know, evolution in your thinking occur and how have you thought about how you, you viewed the, the world through economics as opposed to or in addition to through a technological lens. Yeah, I, I would say that actually the economics was what brought me in. I learned about Bitcoin in 2011. I've been a developer in Bitcoin for five years. So if you do the math, there was about a year and a half, two years where I actually like didn't know about the technical, all, all of the technical details of Bitcoin. I just, you know, read a little bit about it. I didn't actually code in it. The thing that attracted me to Bitcoin in the first place was that 21 million limit. And that that tends to be a something that a lot of people look at and go, oh, oh, man, there's only 21 million, then I better get some just in case this thing works out. There's sort of like this instinctual biological desire for anything scarce. And as soon as people find out about the scarcity is generally when people get interested in it as money. And for me, that that's certainly what happened. And it was only years later that I was like, okay, well, maybe I should learn a little bit more about this thing, especially after a friend told me like, Mt. Cox is doing some shady stuff, you really should get your money out of there. And you know, I had to go learn about wallets and how they work. And I had to download my own and set it up and all that stuff. And that, that led me down a rabbit hole um, of which I've never really left. I, I've been in Bitcoin as a programmer ever since. So the economic stuff came first for me and um, probably largely due to, you know, what happened in 2008 and, you know, being forced to learn a lot about like, what the hell is a bank bailout and why do they need it? And what's a liquidity crunch and uh, you know, what's a lender of last resort and, you know, like learning about all that stuff led me down the path. So the economics came first and then the, then the technological. Sort of a, a school of thought that says that we can learn a lot about 
you know, how, how crypto has evolved and will continue to evolve by studying how, how money has evolved, how, how gold has evolved, how sound money has emerged. And there's another school of thought, and I'm not saying these are exclusive, but and maybe it's a more Silicon Valley school of thought, more like, you know, Chris Dixon and Jason school of thought that says, Hey, this is the next great software platform. We should, you know, makes a lot of analogies to, to the web and how the, the web emerged and some of the early problems the web faced and how this might be, you know, similar. I mean, how, you know, software tends to, you know, eat the world and, and rewrite the things it runs into. And I, I, I'm guessing you're more sympathetic to the, to the first narrative. Is, is that correct? And if so, can you explain why? Yeah, I, I definitely am more sympathetic to the view that this is, uh, this is more an economics thing. It's, um, it is new technology, but it's very different than maybe what like A16Z is, is, is used to or even traditional VC firms. I find solace in the fact that my partners actually came out of like the financial world and they, they actually have I think a deeper understanding of the financial aspect of Bitcoin than maybe a lot of these other VCs who purely see it as a technical play. I, I really don't think it is. And if you look at what blockchain actually is as a very specialized database that, that more or less doesn't let you roll back very easily unless you have the consensus of everybody. It, it's designed around this concept that you can't really change things easily. And that's antithetical to a lot of the techni- technological investments that a lot of VCs make. You, you want to, you know, break things, move fast, fail fast, um, you know, try lots of different things, see what sticks, find product market fit. I've worked in that world for many, many years. First 15 years of my career, in fact, were in like eight or nine different startups. I can't remember exactly how many, but. You know, that, that's the world that Andreessen Horowitz and a lot of these other VCs come from. And they think that's how Bitcoin should move because that's what was successful for them. But when you actually look at the technology and what, what, what it is, you know, with respect to money and so on, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't, you can't make that analogy work because money is strengthened when it doesn't change. Whereas technology is strengthened when you when you iterate and change things around and uh, try different things and see what works for the market. Um, so there there's confusion here because there's two different things. There's money and there's technology, and a lot of people are taking the technology paradigm and and seeing if that fits into money, and they're convinced that they're right because it's worked for them in other technological industries but this is a very specific hybrid of stuff that's why i think they're wrong i I, I, and i think there's a lot of you know money to be made if you can figure out the things that those guys don't know they they don't know money they they know how to invest money in technology companies they don't know money itself let's talk more about that you're a venture partner at blockchain capital Mm -hmm. so can you talk more about you know what your thesis is there and and how you guys look at the world differently from it from an investing lens like what what are those opportunities or or where you know what sector what might those opportunities fall into how would you describe that i can't speak too much to that because honestly i'm i'm more of the technical guy and they are more the grand visionaries and stuff i I'll, i'll go look at white papers or whatever but but the general sense that i've gotten you know just through my my conversations with them is that they they don't think the they they're more into getting equity 
and less into getting utility tokens. I think they see a lot of utility tokens as just sort of complete rubbish. They're, what, what the hell are we buying here? And that, that's not a question a lot of people ask, surprisingly enough. It's, okay, I get this particular token. What is it that I'm buying? Is it a future good or service? Is it equity in something? Am I like what what is it that you're getting at, as a result of owning that token or is it consumable? Does it do something? And those are all very important questions. And like one small flaw in that entire incentive system renders it either like completely useless or like easily printable or all, all kinds of all kinds of things. And I don't think people really know how to analyze that. So. For the most part, our firm tends to stay away from those types of deals and go, go more, much more towards, you know, building the infrastructure around cryptocurrency. So, you know, big investor in Coinbase, for example, and companies of that nature that are actually providing, you know, on ramps onto crypto and things like that. You know, I, I think the, you know, we're named blockchain capital. So we, we look at a lot of things that are using blockchain. A lot of them, uh, frankly, don't make sense, but you know, I mean, some of them might. So, you know, there, there's, uh, investment in some of those things as well. Yeah, totally. And so if I had to summarize, you know, I'll do my best guess at a, at a, at a broad summary. What you're most excited about is the, in crypto is sort of the introduction of sound money and sound money being, mm -hmm. uh, you know, money that, has no central authority that can change it at, at its whims mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, money supply that if, if it changes at all, changes very slowly. So it's predictable. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. the problems right now are that we have unsound money that leads us to, you know, spend unnecessarily. And that leads to all sorts of negative ramifications. Fill in the gaps of, of my summary of where you're most excited about. Yeah, I, I think you, you hit a lot, a lot of it. Uh, I mean, the, the big thing that Bitcoin brings to the world is hard money. And that disappeared when, you know, Roosevelt sees gold and all this other stuff. Um, you know, gold was the hard money, but governments found it more expedient to be able to print their own and like spend their way into poverty, more or less. So, Bringing back sound money, hard money is to me the most important part of Bitcoin. And I think a lot of people underestimate how important hard money is. They think, uh, okay, well, things are working fine. It's not exactly true. If you think about the entire economy and how much of our effort and talents and like entire generations of brilliant, brilliant people that went into essentially investment banking or something like that, which doesn't really add anything to the economy. We've wasted a lot of talent and resources in, in stuff that doesn't actually matter that much, right? Like they, these are the people that were responsible for, you know, the housing bubble, the mortgage crisis and, and, you know, all the stuff that happened in 2008. Instead, you know, they could have been creating goods and services that people wanted, right? Like, you know, property on the moon or something i don't know like uh just stuff that we we've stopped progressing as a society in many ways because we have easy money fiat money and everyone has a short time time orientation or what you would call a high time pre preference or they're uh, willing to spend money now in large part because the money is just so easy to print and and that is an integral part of why society is the way it is today. A lot of people complain about how people are very shallow and, you know, 
don't have any character and things like that. Part of that may be moral degeneracy, but it's it's sped along significantly by the fact that we have easy money. People don't care about what's going to happen tomorrow because you know the their money gets inflated away, and there's no easy way to store all of that value. A lot of it. Like, uh, you know, we have entire professions that are trying to preserve your wealth, right? Like what's a financial planner or, you know, people that give you investment advice and stuff like that. Nobody needed any of that in the 1800s. They just kept their gold and that was it. You didn't it, <laughs> yeah. like it, it's, it's crazy to me that we have entire industries of people that don't need to exist just because we have, you know, easy money easy fiat money that can be printed and inflated away from you at any time. So for me, bringing that back, build civilization, makes a world that's much better, not just for me, but for my kids and my grandkids and everything else. And that's, that's what I want. That's, that's what I, I have one more question here before we move on to medium of exchange. Why did, you know, we had sound money at one point and then we, we moved away from it. You know, Austrian economics, I, I believe was, was in vogue at one point. And then, you know, became out of vogue. Is it as simple as, hey, the powers that be wanted to centralize money for their own, own control? Or did these ideas just sort of lose their intellectual muster at the time? Or how would you sort of trace the the evolution of 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 why these things fell out of favor? Well, the the reason I think was war. The the main main catalyst for almost all of it was World War One. That that uh, I mean, if you if you go back in history and 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 look at what happened there, you know, this was a really minor conflict. It was Serbian separatists like murdering the uh, heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Somehow that became like this giant war that like bankrupted pretty much every country in Europe, and like you know, America had to get involved, and all all of all, like all sorts of things happened as a result of World War One that were completely unexpected at the time that. The catalyzing event happened, which was, you know, Serbian separatists murdering the heir to their Austro-Hungarian empire. I mean, it, it should have been a minor conflict that lasted six months. And, and if you look at the stories at the time and study the history, a lot of people expected, it. OK, well, it's a small conflict. You know, it'll be over six months and then, you know, we'll we'll move on. And, you know, these tiny wars happen here and there and it'll be done. But what happened with World War One? was that governments started using central banking. And central banking allowed, they were nominally on the gold standard, but utilizing central banking and fiat money, they were able to print their way to funding the war. Every war before that, pretty much, would either, you know, it, it would be like the U.S. Civil War, where both sides would print money, basically, or a government would run out of money and then they would have to sue for peace. And the latter way is much better because you don't absolutely destroy everybody in your country. But total war is what fiat money has more or less brought because now government is in control of money and they can print as much as they want. And by printing more and more, you can conf you're essentially confiscating the wealth of the entire nation, right? Whereas before it used to be whatever taxes you collected, that's all you can spend. And then, you know, like you, you would try to borrow against future tax revenue or something like that. But the lenders would be like, well, you've already borrowed this much. We're not going to lend you anymore and so on. That's how wars would end. But World War One was really, really interesting in the sense that 
every government was, had a central bank, so they, they were able to print more and more, and the war kept escalating for that reason. It was because all of these other, one side would basically be like, okay, we're, we're just going all in, and everyone was like, <laughs> okay, well, we don't want to lose, so we're, we're, we're going all in. And that, that led to like complete and utter destruction right. uh, of like every, everybody. And then that continued with World War II, and uh, and we're in this state where you know whenever you have war, it's total war now. It's uh, like it's it's not just government against government or army against army. It's entire countries against entire countries, very literally speaking, right. because you you can uh, the government can take away all of the money and wealth from the populace and and force that uh, you know use that for their war effort and then you know when both sides escalate and you have a lot of hubris and pride and stuff uh, wrapped around all of that of course they're going to keep spending until it's uh, utterly and completely destroyed so for me that that's when it really started that's that's when like the you know like the attraction of fiat was really made real to a lot of governments is is with war and it's kind of a sad commentary but right. uh war is the reason why we're off the gold standard because governments want the right to con continue spending it's kind of like a nuclear weapon basically yeah you know when people try to somebody try to debunk bitcoin they'll say things like hey your bitcoin's a great store value but but it's a lousy medium of exchange and i'm never going to be able to pay with get my coffee cup of coffee with bitcoin or you know, or go to Bitcoin conference, they don't even take Bitcoin or, and the other thing they might say is in order for something to be money, it needs to be used as money. That medium of exchange is actually pretty important. And you, you've said, you've written a bunch about how you don't think medium of exchange is, is that important. Can you share why, why the second thing I mentioned isn't true and why medium of exchange isn't crucial to Bitcoin to us achieving hyper Bitcoinization or whatever we'd like to describe our, our goals for Bitcoin? There, there's an economic law called Gresham's Law, which, uh, which applies here. Whenever you have hard money and easy money, people are going to spend the easy money. That's just a fact. And you can, you can see, uh, like a very easy illustration is imagine if you are in Venezuela right now and they are going through hyperinflation and you have some amount of bolivars and you have some amount of dollars. Dollars are clearly much harder money than bolivars. Bolivars are inflating at like 10% a day or something ridiculous. So you have to go and buy bread. You have the equivalent, you, you have some amount of both. Which do you think you are going to use if you have the option? The, the bad money. <laughs> the money. Yeah, of course. I yeah. mean, you're, you're going to use the bolivars all day long yep. because the money is being literally inflated away or seized from you by the government printing more money. So, that that's Gresham's law. The harder money is you're you're going to hoard the harder money and you're going to spend the easy money. That's just how people think. And again, this is something that I said before, but you know, there's a biological instinct almost to hoard something that is scarce. If it, if something is not scarce, then you don't value it as much. Whereas if something is scarce, then you're going to value it a lot more. Even if you if you don't value it, as long as you know other people value it, you'll value it as sort of like a transferable property. Like, I don't particularly find Picassos to be attractive or interesting, but if I can get it for, you know, free or, or for a very discounted price, of course I would buy it because I know that there are other people that will value it more than I will. So 
that that's the idea behind a store of value is that when you have something that's scarce, you want to hoard it. And that's enough to cause a network effect. I might not value Bitcoin, but it, as long as I know other people value Bitcoin, I will value Bitcoin just because other people value Bitcoin. That, that, that's how, you know, gold started as money and all of this other stuff. It, it, it's because if other people have will are willing to take it from me for some good or service, it actually becomes more convenient for me to hoard it because right. I know that at, at some point in the future I can trade it. That said, uh, the the argument around medium of exchange is, is, I think, very misguided because the things that make something a good medium of exchange are completely different than what make it a store of value. The reason people get into Bitcoin is because of its actual scarcity. They don't get into it because Starbucks takes it or McDonald's takes it or, you know, your friend takes it or whatever. I mean, those are nice properties, but, you know, the U.S. dollar or credit cards or whatever are, are way more useful as mediums of exchange because more people take the, the thing that you want in a medium of exchange is more merchants accepting it for convenience and things like that, which I think Personally, Bitcoin loses in almost every respect to a, to a credit card. Other than being decentralized, there's really no advantage over a credit card. Uh, I mean, maybe for micropayments or something like that. Vast majority of the time, you could, you get the same price that you would as cash. And that's actually an advantage because you, you accrue additional benefits like airline miles or points on your credit card or something like that. So, and almost everybody takes it. So it, it's like, you know, there used to be a, a point in time. I, I still remember like 20 years ago where, you know, you couldn't pay like McDonald's with a credit card. But, right. you know, I mean, almost all of them take it now. So medium of exchange isn't like fiat is used as a medium of exchange almost everywhere. That doesn't necessarily make it a store of value or valuable necessarily as money. We're right now talking about temporal scalability. If, if you need to use things right now, then then, you know, other currencies might be or other mediums of exchange are actually much, much better. Now, there are places where Bitcoin is better than the traditional system of credit cards or bank transfers or cash or whatever than fiat is. Uh, so, for example, drug drugs over the Internet. In-person cash is obviously better because, you know, right. it's, it's more people get it whatever. But over the Internet, it turns out that Bitcoin can actually be better. Now, the other one is foreign remittances. So uh, if you instead of using Western Union or something like that, and this, by the way, is because everyone's off the gold standard and mm -hmm. exchange rates fluctuate and all that stuff. But if uh, if I wanted to send some money to someone in Ghana that, you know, that that that's going to incur like a 10 percent fee or whatever, Bitcoin might actually be better. The salient thing to notice about both of those is that if you really are using it for either of those, then you don't care about the price at all. Right. At all. You like, you know, you, you're like, oh, OK, well, as long as there's no slippage or like, you know, it, it ends up costing me 2% of my fiat, then I don't really care what the price is. It could be Bitcoin could be $5. It could be $5 million. It doesn't matter to you because you are getting in and getting out very quickly. So I, I don't think Bitcoin is used that 
much right. for that purpose. And this is something that was proved way back in 2013. Ross Ulbricht was arrested, you know, in October 5th or something like that, or October yeah. 1st, somewhere around there. And everybody thought, okay, well, this is the death knell of Bitcoin because all people use Bitcoin for is for drugs on the dark net. <laughs> Turned out completely not to be the case. And it went on a bull run like uh, that, that we haven't seen even in 2017. Like we had a massive yeah. bull, bull. But that was, Peanuts compared to what happened right after the Ross Albrecht arrest. It went from around $100, it dropped to 80 with news of his arrest, and it went to $1,100 barely a month and a half later, which is yeah. crazy, right? Like six weeks, it went up like 11-fold. We, we've never had a run like that. And part of that was people recognizing, okay, it's not just a medium of exchange. Right. It's actually being utilized as a store of value. So for me... That's, that's the main, main use case. So let me, let me ask you there in terms of a few questions. One is, what is the ultimate success case for Bitcoin as a store of value look like? Hyper Bitcoinization or whatever you want to call it. Does it mean it becomes, you know, the global reserve currency? Like what does success look like in that case? The second question I have is, you know, 30 years from now, name your time. What will we be using as a medium, a medium of exchange? Do you think it will continue to be fiat and visa and then your, or whatever it is today? And then the last question is, how many coins do you think will exist slash need to exist for the different purposes that we need? Wow, a lot of questions there. I'll try to take them one at a time. All right. So the first question was about what's the great, what's the success case yes. uh, for Bitcoin as a store of value look like? Uh, for me, it, it, it looks like um, the, the irony of the answer is that it, it has to do with medium of exchange. Uh, the ultimate success will look like this. When, when merchants stop, start demanding Bitcoin, they stop taking fiat. That's, that's when you know it's the ultimate store of value. And that, you know that because they, they don't see value in fiat. It become, uh, you know, fiat becomes like the boulevard in Venezuela where it's like, well, I'm, I, I don't, I don't want this useless money because it's, uh, it's, it's inflating too quickly against the real hard money. And they, they start demanding Bitcoin instead of that. That's when you start that transition into medium of exchange, which is uh, related to your second question, which can you remind me? Yeah. In, in 20, 30 years, will I be using Bitcoin to get a cup of coffee? Yeah. So I, I think eventually, I don't know if it's 20, 30 years. I don't know if it's five years or a hundred years. But at some point when, when you have a hard of money as Bitcoin, people are going to start demanding it as the thing that they want in the medium of exchange because they find the other mediums of exchange less valuable. So this is Gresham's law at work when hard money is hoarded so much that everyone wants to hoard it instead of this other stuff. And then, and then hyper Bitcoinization happens and all of the other currencies start going away. At that point, you know, you're, you're, you're going to want Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. And that, that's when, you know, like, uh, stuff like Lightning Network and all of that stuff that we're building now will become much more prominent. It, okay. Well, I, I can buy cups of coffee, you know, you, using some offline, off chain settlement method. Uh, and that can actually, like, it can be decentralized, like the Lightning Network. Or it can be completely centralized, like Coinbase. I don't know. It, like you can you can have rows in the database, and Coinbase can be kind of like your bank, where okay, it's a it's a bank transfer. It doesn't really cost very much, or they they do it for free because you know they get to keep custody of your Bitcoin or something, or they can 
lend it out or whatever. But, you know, there, there are business models that we don't really know how they're going to work. But at some point, you will be at least settling in Bitcoin and you will have derivative products, you know, that, that trade basically at par, whether that's through a side chain or something like that. We don't know. But the idea is that you get to a point where so many people are hoarding it that nobody nobody will accept anything else. And that that's when you start getting into the medium of exchange realm. I, I think a lot of people that are thinking about that now, like Roger Ver and people like that, they're putting the cart before the horse. Right, premature. Uh, they're, they're saying, well, yeah, it, it's way premature. And, you know, we're, we have plenty of time to build that infrastructure. We can try a lot of different things. You know, I, like you, you can see it on Bitcoin Cash, like their their volumes are extremely low. You don't need the eight megabyte blocks when like you're, you're not even filling them to 100K. So it's it, it's it seems rather silly to me. Yeah, we're, we're going to get to the Bitcoin Cash part in a second. But my last question to you is mm-hmm. how many coins do we need slash do you see playing out? Like, will there be a privacy coin or will just Bitcoin, you know, take care of that? Or what are your thoughts on the future of coins? Well, so I, I always thought that sidechains would get rid of all of these altcoins because you, you can have more or less the same properties as uh, like, say, Monero, ex- except better on a sidechain because it's pegged to it's pegged to the Bitcoin. You can, you can have a sidechain where, you know, you send Bitcoins over and then it you can only send that much back as you put into the sidechain. So and the sidechain can have all sorts of properties like uh, confidential transactions and confidential assets and blinding and all this other stuff. And getting that mechanism right is obviously something that's still being debated. But once you have that, you don't you don't really need any of these other coins because you I mean, other than as like a testing ground, I guess, for for sidechains or something like that, because you, you you have all of it. And the beautiful part about a lot of these sidechains is that. It's completely off chain, obviously, because it's, it's, uh, it's not on the main chain. It's on the side chain. But at a certain point, when all of the money has been settled back to the main chain, you can throw that entire blockchain away. You don't, nobody has to keep track of it. If they don't want to. You, you more or less, uh, have scalability at, at levels that you don't have to think about, right? Because you can have a hyper specialized chain just for dentists, right? Like this is DentaCoin gets a very bad rap uh, because they're trying to make a coin for dentists or whatever. But say you 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 want settlement between dentists and their insurance providers or something, you could have a hyper specialized side chain that does this. Right. And you don't have to trust any, uh, I mean, you, depending on the trust model of the side chain, you might not have to trust anybody and you can you can do everything and and bring it back on chain and do everything that you need to like like that that level of specialization and speed and stuff like that are all possible and it might take us 20 30 years to get there i don't know but you know the it's definitely possible and that that's the vision that i see happening like trying to create a separate coin for each and pricing them differently this is it it feels a lot more like fiat and one of the things that i've learned through safety dean's book the bitcoin standard was that when the world was on the gold standard you know the entire foreign exchange market did not exist right because every currency was pegged to gold so it was like okay one german mark was equivalent to this many grams of gold one U.S. dollar was equivalent to this many grams of gold. It was just straight math to convert 
a U.S. dollar to a German mark or whatever. The entire altcoin trading market feels very much like what happened right afterwards when everyone went to fiat is that, you know, you, you had this entire foreign exchange market, which, uh, you know, basically is a tax on everybody that's trading internationally. That's what we have with the altcoin trading market. You're, you're taxing everybody to utilize these other coins. And that's, that's a much less efficient system than something like sidechains where, you know, you, you can have all of these features, but you don't get taxed in between through all of this trading. So, I mean, that, that's, that's the world that I want, I want to see happen, but I, I don't know if it'll get there very quickly, but it, it is more efficient and better tech. Hopefully that, that's enough to win, but who knows? Yeah. yeah. Let's, uh, let's, Go a little bit to the, the Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash fork that happened last year. You, you wrote a lot before it happened about how you were, you were very concerned if something like that would happen. And then afterwards, in my understanding, is pleasantly surprised that it, uh, put Bitcoin in an even better place. Could you sort of summarize? And I know this is like a five year war <laughs> that happened, but can you summarize a little bit? So that, you know, my understanding is concerns between miners wanted larger blocks, you developers or, you know, other ideas. Can you, can you summarize the crux of, of the conflict and, and why you were happy with, with the, or relatively happy with the way it turned out? Yeah. So the big debate was about how to increase throughput on Bitcoin. So there's a one megabyte block. There was a one megabyte block limit. And, and uh, why was it important to, to increase th- throughput? Like, would that make it a better store of value or is it because they wanted it as a medium of exchange? Well, so uh, very practically speaking, fees were starting to go up. So people didn't like that. They didn't want to pay 50 cents a transaction or whatever it was. And that that was the catalyst for a lot of this stuff. And people knew it was coming. Uh, you know, like the blocks were starting to fill up starting in like 2014, 2015. And it became a much bigger issue as a lot of these like scale. I mean, there, there's a whole conference called Scaling Bitcoin meant to, you know, discuss this issue. Because it became such a point of contention. But because blocks were limited to one megabyte and because a block happens about every 10 minutes, uh, you can do the math. It ends up being something like three transactions per second if, um, you know, on a normal size transactions, which means that a lot of the space gets taken up and you have to, in order to get into a block, you have to pay more and more fees in order to get in. Good. Uh, I mean, that, that's just economics. That's how it's supposed to work. But, you know, people wanted bigger or more throughput because they envisioned Bitcoin growing. And there were two proposals put forward. One was SegWit. The other one was increasing block size. And, you know, there were there were two camps. Uh, The thing about increasing block size straight up was that it would be a hard fork. That is a forced upgrade. So every user would have to upgrade. Everyone on the network would have to upgrade. So that would probably have split the network. So that, that was the technical reason why a lot of people didn't want to do a hard fork and instead wanted to do something like SegWit, which is a much more clever mechanism for increasing block size, uh, with the drawback that, you know, you would have to, you know, start using, you know, a different mechanism, if you will. And instead of block size, it would be utilizing something called block weight. But, you know, if, uh, if, people slowly voluntarily started converting over, then the optimum block size ends up being about two megabytes. So, you know, you would have gotten more or less the same thing, but the miners wanted a quicker fix. I mean, honestly, I I think 
looking back, it, it looks more like a power play to me. Like they wanted to be able to control what was going on more so than the actual change itself. And that ended up becoming a giant point of contention. And, uh, and we had something called the New York Agreement, which Barry Silbert brokered uh, between a lot of companies that was agreed to in consensus 2017. So uh, Barry Silbert did that. And a lot of people thought, okay, well, then, you know, this compromise is, is the way that it's going to go. Uh, they wanted both SegWit and doubling of the block size. So it would have been like with SegWit, it would optimum block size would have been four megabytes, something like that. And that didn't, that, that had a lot of resistance from a lot of users and developers and it ended up not going through, which was to me the biggest shocker in the entire thing. Because almost everywhere else, when you have a bunch of powerful companies get together, they almost always get what they want, right? Like right. in the U.S., you you have a bunch of big companies lobbying for almost anything. You know, they're they're gonna get that way. When when it was the users that fought back and won, that was pretty crazy. And that to me was was the big reason for Bitcoin's big uptrend in 2017 was that it proved that the corporations are not in charge it's actually users and you can't change almost you can't change bitcoin very easily there's no central party you can't broker a piece like barry silbert did and change bitcoin and and and, and do things like that that it, it, that's just too centralized and it's the the main property that we proved is its immutability you you really can't force anyone to do anything in bitcoin which is great and that's why i was pleasantly surprised i really thought that the corporations would win i, I and just just from you know experience and and watching the news and things so for me that makes bitcoin super solid and i think that's what brought a lot of people in yeah i've i've heard you know a couple of narratives one is that Bitcoin has sort of a five-year, you know, uh, internal near civil war to determine the size of block size. It's going to be impossible to change monetary supply, you know, money supply. So it gave them uh, monetary policy. So it gave them, you know, or people more confidence in, in, in Bitcoin's immutability. At the same time, you know, Bitcoin you know, didn't want bigger back size. So it became both more confidence that it wouldn't change. And yet the small change that did happen made Bitcoin better, which sort of made it an ideal solution. Mm -hmm. Do you share that assessment or would there have been a more ideal solution that you would have preferred? No, no, it, it was a, it was a really good solution. The more I've studied SegWit, the more appreciation I have for how brilliant it was because it, it does allow future upgrades in a, in a much smoother way than, than SegWit was. So for example, right now we're on SegWit version zero and it uses ECDSA. SegWit version one can use Schnorr signatures with music and all this other stuff. You can get a lot of properties uh, on a voluntary basis. So no one, no one's forced to upgrade to SegWit version one. Um, that would be a new, new version of Bitcoin core or something like that. But if you wanted to use it because it's got such cool tech, then, then you could, right? Like, uh, and, Having this voluntary ability to upgrade and to change, like not be forced to upgrade, that's a, a critical and big difference. And one of the, one of the things that makes Bitcoin so much better than almost everything else out there, you know, with, with something like fiat, obviously people can, you know, the Congress can raise the debt ceiling or something and then, you suddenly have a lot more supply of dollars. And with uh, Monero or whatever, 
you know, you, you have a group of developers that pretty much decide whatever they want. And you can tell because they hard fork whenever they want. The fact that you can force every user to upgrade means that you are in control. And that, that's, that's not a good thing. The, the centralized control is what we're getting away from. Decentralized scarcity is what we're going towards. So having proved that for me was a big milestone for Bitcoin and very appropriate for, you know, almost it's, uh, you know, it's almost 10 years old now. Um, next year, next January, I guess it'll be 10 years old. That will be a major milestone for a lot of people because the only way to really prove things, you know, in society, like in almost anything is with enough time. You can't really prove that something works and something as complex as a market economy or currency or money or whatever, unless it's lasted a really, really long time. That's the only assurances that we can really get. So, yeah, that, that to me is the, is the excitement. That's, uh, that's what continues to, mm-hmm. you know, make me more confident in Bitcoin. Hopefully that, that's what brings more people into Bitcoin. And, you know, generally, like, as things age and I, we're, we already have 20 year olds that, you know, have heard about Bitcoin for like six, seven years, right? right? Most of their high school life and college life, they've known about Bitcoin. You know, when they turn, 28, 29, 30, and, you know, they're, they're thinking, you know, getting married and thinking about like how to save for retirement and stuff like that. They're going to have Bitcoin on their minds, right? Yeah. And th- those are the people that are going, that's the new money that's going to really come in. You know, like people keep pandering to these like old money people that you know, already had money. I, I, I wouldn't worry too much about those people. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're going to die off and it's, this happens in science all the time where like when the old generation dies off, there's like a whole mess of new innovations that come as a result of, you know, those guys not not holding everybody else back. Right now we're being held back by, you know, the Warren Buffets of the world, right? right. The people that are really old money that have, that think they know everything, but really they don't. They they it's, it's a whole new thing. Uh, so. That, 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 that excites me. It's a generational shift in, you know, paradigms and, uh, you know, shift of wealth and it's upheaval and revolution, but in a much safer, calmer way and in a way that matters without, you know, too much bloodshed and things like that. I, who knows? Maybe this causes war eventually (laughs) and, uh, and things like that. But as far as I can tell, this is a very, you know, if you are for peace and things like that, this is a very mild way to go about revolution. And I think that's, that's wonderful. Totally. I want to get into a little bit, you know, centralization, decentralization. People use those words in different ways. Some people like to criticize Bitcoin by either saying that, you know, mining is too centralized with, with Bitmain or Bitmain exerts too much power. You, you have this great post about why that isn't the case. So we don't need to get, get into that necessarily. Uh, others say, Hey, there's not enough developers at Bitcoin core. I'm, I'm curious if on the one hand you, you wish anything was, was different with, within mining or Bitcoin core. Or you think that's possible. And on the other hand, uh, some people say, you know, and, and you like to say that, you know, the other coins are, are, are centralized if, if they're hard fork or, if, you know, people can, can change things. And I'm curious if for you, decentralization is sort of a binary thing or if it's, if it's on a spectrum where, you know, Bitcoin is decentralized to the point where governments can't take it down, but maybe there's some sort of, you know, 
I'm curious if you're sympathetic to the Ethereum or even EOS sort of viewpoint that there's, you know, there's a spectrum of decentralization and it's unclear where the optimal, uh, optimal level is and, and new experiments are good for figuring that out. What's your take on those two topics? Well, yeah. So let, let me answer the second one first. You, you either are decentralized or you are not. I, I see it as very binary. Either somebody controls it or somebody does not. If one person controls it, as far as I can tell, EOS is controlled by Dan Larimer. He is your single point of failure. He, If I kidnap his family, I can get it, threaten them and I can get him to change the monetary policy or all sorts of things in EOS. That that means a government can do the same thing. So I don't I don't see how it's it's decentralized in any way if there's a central point of failure. If there's a single point of failure where you can go in, choke something out, then it is controllable by government. And at that point, it's no better than fiat because the government would then control it. So for me, EOS, Ethereum, all of these other altcoins, you know, who have a creator at the very least, but oftentimes even more single points of failure, then it's, it's not decentralized in any shape. Like maybe aspects could be considered decentralized in the sense that, you know, there are 10 of the software running so it's not it doesn't have a single software point of failure but it, as long as you have a single point of failure you take a, i mean you you threaten vitalik in a credible way he will and you know he takes that threat seriously and believes you he you know you you can pretty much make ethereum do whatever you want right like you can you can bail out whoever you want you can print more money if you want. You can, you know, change the rules if you want. Uh, you could do whatever you want. It's, it's, it's a single point of failure. If, if Vitalik is kidnapped, then you can control the coin. And don't think that, you know, like governments are too moral to do something like that. That's very much a possibility. If Ethereum were to get so valuable that, you know, a, a small country, were to think, okay, well, if we control Vitalik, then we can uh, we can get much wealthier. Don't think, I mean, that that's something that they would absolutely consider. Um, you don't you don't think North Korea thinks about stuff like that? Then then you're crazy. Uh, like, of course they would think about right. stuff like that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it's either decentralized or it's not. And uh, as far as I can tell, every other coin and every other money other than like uh, physical stuff like gold or something. And that's only if you actually possess it. It's, it's centralized. And this, this, there's a presentation I give about decentralized digital scarcity. That's what Bitcoin is. Everything else, it really isn't. That said, you know, there, there's criticisms that people always levy against Bitcoin. And it's, it's amazing how almost everyone points to, oh, Bitcoin centralized because of core and mining as if the, uh, as if they're easily chokeable or something like that. Okay. If Bitmain went away tomorrow, Bitcoin would still exist. If, uh, if a government controlled Bitmain and, you know, like, and they started trying to do something nefarious, they would get cut off right away. Um, so say, let's, let's take the absolute worst case scenario. Bitmain has backdoors on all of its miners that they can control, you know, with, uh, with a single command that makes them mine blocks that only they want. And the Chinese government finds out about it. They start to stealthily use that to censor transactions. Okay. What, what would happen then? Would they, would that be a single point of failure? 
I would say no, because there are other miners other than Bitmains. There's a lot of other miners, in fact. And if they if they started acting strangely or did something against the rules, so say they started advocating for a hard fork that would increase the 21 million limit, okay? What would happen? Well, people would say, hell no, you're not going <laughs> to do that. Well, they'll say, okay, well, we're going to put all our mining power behind it. And people would say, Go right ahead. That's just right. going to be a hard fork. It'll, it'll be, uh, you know, less useful than even Bitcoin cash. Like people, people would abandon it right away and they, they would essentially be wasting their mining power. A lot of people think that we work for the miners. That's not the case. The miners work for us. Right. They, they secure the network and get paid for it. If they stop securing the network, they don't get paid. Their their business model falls apart. Even in the absolute worst case scenario, you know, I mean, they they hurt themselves way more than they hurt Bitcoin. Uh, right. That that's just reality of the, of the game theory behind this thing. So they don't control Bitcoin. It's not a single point of failure. It's not the it, it's not centralized. So I I don't understand this criticism. And if if people want to say it's centralized or, or or you know keep saying that FUD, well. Here, here's the bad news. All, all of the other stuff is much worse. So, so there. Like, I, I don't understand your criticism at all. It's uh, as if it, it, it's kind of like saying, okay, like Michael Jordan, you know, <laughs> couldn't dribble with his feet, therefore he's a bad basketball player. That, it, it's, it's a ridiculous asser- assertion. Like, uh, okay, all right, maybe Bitmain has a, has a few more, but I bet you if you challenge Michael Jordan with something like that, he'd learn to dribble with his feet because that's <laughs> how fierce a competitor he was. But, I mean, it, 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 it's a ridiculous assertion. Now, the other one is about core, and there is some cause for concern because there aren't that many core developers. Um, you know, I, I think uh, about 500 people have contributed to core so far, if you count by uh, GitHub commits. Who knows how many of those accounts are actually like groups of people or whatever. But say, say 500 entities, you know, and only about 50 or 60 contribute on a regular basis. So, you know, there, there is some cause for concern there, but is it a single point of failure? Absolutely not. It, it, like if Vladimir Vanderlaan went away, he's like the lead maintainer or, or, or if he got, if, if he were, if his family were kidnapped, would Bitcoin go away? Would Bitcoin be easily controlled? No. No, it wouldn't, because Vladimir is just one of many, many voices in Bitcoin. You would need to probably capture about 40 people in right. order to be able to choke, uh, you know, like control it in any meaningful way. And that that would be pretty difficult, number one. And that's not, by definition, not a single point of failure. That said, you know, I would like there to be more developers. And this is why I do programming blockchain. This is the big gap that I saw in the industry was we need more developers. We need more people that actually understand this. We need more people that will code and contribute and try to make things better and better. And that, that, that's why I, I, I've been doing it. And thankfully it's, it's paying off. I've had students that have contributed to core that are putting in pull requests and stuff like that. And, you know, over, and a lot of the people that I've trained are fairly young, right? Like they're yep. in college, some even in high school. You know, they, as they grow up, they're, they're going to have Bitcoin on their brain and they're going to, you know, see it, I think, in a clearer way than maybe a lot of the older developers. And they'll, they'll be able to contribute more meaningfully uh, as they grow older. So, you know, it's A, not centralized and B, you know, this is something that I, I'm working to fix 
And I think a lot of other people are working on things because they, they see the same need as I do. I mean, this is why I, I'm getting a lot of contributions for scholarships and stuff. If you want to be a Bitcoin developer and you have the talent, I will train you. And I, I could possibly do that for free because there are, there have been so many companies and so many individuals that see the value in, you know, de-risking a little bit from, you know, uh, lack of uh, core devs. So I, 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 I'm happy to train them. Please apply to the scholarships because, you know, I, I have plenty of them to give. Uh, I just, I just need people to apply. Basically, I need more qualified people yeah. to apply. And we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. That's awesome. Back to mining for a second. And then we have a couple other last questions. Do you think a, a company can, putting aside, you know, how it affects Bitcoin, um, cause we just established it doesn't, but do you think a company can compete with Bitmain? Like is mining competitive? Like would you see yourself potentially investing in a mining company that's trying to compete with Bitmain? I could, I could definitely see that. I, there, there are already a bunch of competitors, uh, both from below and above and, by below, I mean like startups that are not nearly as big as Bitmain. There's uh, Orion Mining, there's Dragon Mint, there's several others uh, that are trying. And, you know, it, it turns out semiconductor, the semiconductor industry is actually a lot more centralized than Bitcoin is. So it's a lot easier for Bitmain to sort of hold a lot of these Make it a little, make life a little more difficult for a lot of these startups by uh, buying up inventory and things like that. So that's from below, but the, you know they're making headway. It's, I mean, like people are thinking it'll take like six months to like take over ten percent. It's uh, the, that era of Bitcoin is uh, long over. You're you're going, you know, Bitmain's put in some moats. They're a very competent company, and this is something that I tell people all the time. Like, do not underestimate them as a company. They really know what the hell they're doing uh, with in the semiconductor industry, with like manufacturing and all that stuff. That that's their specialization, and they. They know how to do it better than anybody. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of companies trying to compete there. Will they all succeed? Probably not, but will one or two? Very possibly. It's, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of room to improve on what Bitmain already does. We already know, for example, that, you know, they, they have a particular type of ASIC design that's got a lot of patents around it, but they, those things aren't set in stone. There's there's a lot of other ways to do it that might be more efficient and so on. And then there are competitors from above. And by above, I mean that are bigger than Bitmain. So Samsung and Intel and NVIDIA, I think it's only a matter of time before those those companies get into this game because they have all of the necessary expertise in semiconductors and chip design and things like that. It's just that for a long time, it wasn't a big enough market for them to actually bother with it. But, you know, with uh, like NVIDIA in particular, you know, their GPUs have been selling because of all of these altcoins and stuff. They're realizing, okay, maybe we should, uh, you know, like a large part of our profits are already coming from there. We we need to think about this. Intel is thinking the same thing. Samsung is thinking the same thing. I mean, you know, I, I think Bitmain made over a billion dollars in profit last year. You know, even if you're a $200 billion company, a billion's a lot of money, especially in profit. So, so they, they're definitely looking into it. They probably have something going. Uh, you know, a Bitmain has a stranglehold on a lot of the manufacturing, which is honestly a little too centralized. And I'm hoping that with all of these new players coming in, that 
you know, a lot of semiconductor manufacturing and things are will will get a little more decentralized. It's funny, uh, the criticism around mining being centralized is really more criticism around semiconductor manufacturing being centralized than Bitcoin actually being centralized. And that that is a val- that part is a valid concern. But, you know, like competition breeds more, more innovation. You know, there, there are newer processes that are being put into place. There, there are uh, more interesting techniques. You know, it used to be that it would take two or three years from design to tape out where you can actually manufacture chips. Uh, that window has reduced to six months. I, I can see that window like reducing even further with, you know, so many of these things being profitable. You know, eventually we'll get to a point where, you know, you can go from a design of a chip to manufacturing an ASIC for it within like six weeks or something like that. Wow. And that would be amazing because the turnaround and iterations around this stuff is the thing that's keeping Bitmain's monopoly more or less, or I mean, not monopoly, but their market dominance in that, in that industry. But these windows will shrink. Innovation will happen. I believe in human ingenuity. So, yeah, I, I, I don't see this as a long-term problem. Two last questions. I'll ask them right now. I know you got to run in a couple minutes. One is, do you see, and this might be a quick question because the answer may be no. Do you see any other uses for blockchain or cryptocurrency other than money? Are things like prediction markets or DAOs or are there any other use cases that are interesting to you? That might be a quick, quick no. The second question is, and this is in closing, is where are we at right now in terms of scalability? Like we talked about side chains. Like when will we see a meaningful side chain? Like, when can we expect Lightning to have an impact? Or maybe you could just give a survey of, of where we're at right now from a scalability perspective with Bitcoin. Yeah, so I mean, it's possible that there are other use cases. I, I know Paul Storks worked on you know, HiveMind for a very long time. And, and a lot of the ways in which he looks at the technology and how, how to make a prediction market work, that that's very possible. It's possible that you can do that on a side chain. I, I I don't necessarily see like blockchains on their own being really viable. You know, like a supply chain blockchain or whatever, and you know, blockchain for music rights or whatever. And I don't really see separate blockchains for those. But I am more optimistic about sort of hooking into Bitcoin as the main blo- decentralized blockchain and utilizing that for different use cases. So Christopher Allen, for example, is using util, uh, wants to utilize Bitcoin blockchain for decentralized web of trust. And that that's very possible, right? Like you can have a self-sovereign identity that's tracked along uh, Bitcoin utilizing something like colored coins as a way to have a decentralized identity that everyone can verify, but isn't doesn't have a central choke point. That that's a very useful case. Is it possible to do that with a lot of this this other stuff? Very much so. But uh, a lot of them have gone down the road uh, road of issuing their own token because that's the way to raise money these days. And I think those are all dead ends. But is it possible to utilize the blockchain for a lot of this other stuff? Yes, it's, uh, it just has to be decentralized first. Only decentralized blockchain that we know of is Bitcoin. So it has to hook in in some way. The other question was about scalability and where we are on that. Lightning is very scalable uh, and it, it's uh, almost infinitely so. As long as you have enough money in the channels, and that's a very big if, and as long as, uh, you know, routing works reasonably, and that, that seems uh, to be getting there. 
then you can you can have payments that are more or less at the speed of a web page load and trustless in a very brilliant way very very quickly and uh lightning continues to grow i i think there's a cap uh on on its growth just because i don't think people want to spend uh, bitcoin nearly as much as they want to hoard it so that uh, that i think puts a natural limit on its capacity but it's got a long way to go in, in terms of growth um and I, I i i see that as something that will continue to grow side chains like when will it happen uh you know uh, like the that's not a question that you, i i can really confidently answer in any way shape or form and anyone that tells you that they can is probably lying uh and this is because we are on a decentralized network uh it's a decentralized development program you know like there's no roadmaps or anything there's no central entity that's saying okay well we're going to do this in q1 of next year q2 of next year and then we'll have a product out by q1 of 2022 or something that's not how how development works development in bitcoin works by people just making stuff and seeing what what happens with it and they may choose to create it in a certain way uh, and if it's compatible with the current software, then they don't have, they don't need any core support to do it. Then they can release it whenever they want. If they need new op codes or something like that. Then they're going to have to go through the core development process, which can take, a, honestly, take a very long time. So, you know, there, there's no roadmap or expectation or anything. It, it just sort of happens. It's kind of like asking, when will, city x grow to 20 million people well you don't know right like depends on what happens in that city uh it might it might shrink like detroit has and might grow like austin has you you have no idea like it, it it grows and shrinks based on market demand and technology available and that's how we have to think about these things a lot of people think about it sort of from a centralized standpoint well somebody's in charge and they can tell us exactly when it's going to happen well, no one's in charge with Bitcoin, so you can't make those kinds of things. It's uh, it's decentralized, like cities, and you you know, I mean, without a city government, basically, it's a it's a city without a city government, and you can't predict any of that stuff. And it happens when it happens. And if you want to make it happen, then go and make it happen. Otherwise, you're going to have to wait. Perfect. Well, this is this has been fantastic. If, if you enjoyed what you what you heard of this episode, you can. Follow Jimmy on Twitter at Jimmy Song. Read all of his Medium posts. There's a lot of amazing stuff there. And then also, if you want to learn more and apply to his blockchain education course, check out programmingblockchain.com. Any other plugs, Jimmy? I'm working on a book. Hopefully, we'll get it finished by the end of the year and have it released in 2019. That's for O'Reilly, same publisher as Antonopoulos' Mastering Bitcoin. Yeah, I, I have a YouTube channel uh, where I've been putting out like these five, six minute videos. They're nice and short, so you can you can watch them and maybe learn something. I'm not sure. And uh, I, I have a Twitter, Jimmy Song. I tweet about a bunch of stuff. I am going to be in Chicago for my next seminar. I'm also doing a carnivory dinner. Those are really fun. It's uh, like the intersection of Bitcoin and eating. I, for some reason, that that turns out to be something that people like. Hmm. I'm going to be speaking at Voice of Blockchain and the blockchain cruise uh that that's going to the, both of those events should be fun and hacker congress which is in prague in october yeah i i i 
do speaking, I do corporate training, I do all sorts of stuff. So if you want to hit me up, just email me at jimmy at programmingblockchain.com. Yeah, and hopefully there's something of use to you there. <laughs> totally. <laughs> if you need any beta readers for your book, if you'd like some, uh, you know, or if you're taking any, count me in as I, as I can't wait to. Well, it, it's it. it's all there already. It's oh, open source. Post? It's uh, open source on my GitHub. If you go to github.com slash Jimmy Song slash Programming Bitcoins, it's all there. Perfect. I'll, I'll start reading it, um, and I'll try to catch you on your on your trip to San Francisco. It sounds great, Jimmy. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for for taking the time. All right. Thank you for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc. We'd love to learn more about what you're up to.